I hope to get a little bit of the Sydney I will, about uh, um, possible unexplored uh, and uh, as yet unknown relevance of McClure to <coughs> today's media studies. Peter will say a bit more about that. Uh, so my name is Peter Adey, I'm a senior lecturer um, in strategy and marketing at the business school and I'm also doing my PhD at the London School of Economics at the mo at moment and that is actually how I found out about Graham Harmon, um, how I uh, met him. Um, and uh, to just give you a little bit of a background, Graham, um, Dr. Graham Harmon is a professor of, uh, is associate professor of philosophy at, um, America, at the American University in Cairo. In the recent, uh, he has just finished one semester of um, serving as a visiting professor of metaphysics and the philosophy of science at the University of Amsterdam. So he's fresh from uh, Holland visiting us uh, uh, here. And uh, he's also the author of three books on Heidegger, and he's mostly known for, for his work on Heidegger. That's why it's particularly interesting to hear about McLuhan and his other interest, uh, Bruno Latour. Um, which uh, is sort of an unusual uh, combination uh, to, to, to some extent. Uh, in Graham's first book, um, 2002, called uh, Tool Being, he has attempted an um, analysis and um, an interpretation of Heidegger's notion of the fourfold, which is one of the conundra of um, Heideggerian scholarship. And a lot of his work is springing from that particular interpretation, so he will revisit that uh, with us today. And, uh, and uh, um, he's, uh, he followed on with a book called Guerrilla Metaphysics, where he was developing his own uh, object-orientated philosophy uh, on the basis of his uh, Heideggerian interests. And most recently, a book called Heidegger Explained, which is uh, um, uh, also a, an introduction to Heidegger, but uh, also one that sort of captures uh, these essential aspects of uh, Heideggerian scholarship. Most recently, Graham has just finished a manuscript on Bruno Latour. It's called Prince of Networks, Bruno Latour and Metaphysics. And actually, tomorrow at the London School of Economics, there is going to be a symposium discussing Graham's manuscript. We will have Bruno Latour there and uh, 40 other philosophers uh, and social scientists discussing the relevance, the philosophy of Bruno Latour. So um, it's a particularly great pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Harmon here <coughs> at uh, Bournemouth University and um, we're looking forward to your McLuhan uh, talk. Please put your hands together. Thanks. And actually, your statement was an interesting way to start because I, I think it probably is true that McLuhan's name is not one you encounter much in your field and certainly not in philosophy, not at all, whatsoever. And yet, I, when I read him coming from a philosophical standpoint, he, to me, is very clearly a giant. And I want to spell out today why that is. And that has something to do with my interpretation of Heidegger, who is becoming more and more the consensus Greek philosopher of the 20th century. And so to link McLuhan to Heidegger can only strengthen McLuhan in many ways. Uh, McLuhan, of course, was first in vogue in the 1960s during the television culture craze. And then he became a bit passe, I think, during the 70s and 80s, and came back during the early 1990s when the internets became big. Uh, the Wired magazine circle of people became very interested in McLuhan again. Now it seems to have died again for a while, and I guess it could resurge with the next great technological wave, whatever that might be. But yet he's, he doesn't seem to be seen as an especially serious uh, academic figure, and in fact, this, the McLuhan Center at the University of Toronto really struggles. I, I led up there to lecture about 10 years ago, and they seem somewhat marginalized. Uh, his son Eric is still there uh, running things, the last I heard. Um, and yet, 
there's great discrepancy between this lack of attention paid to McLuhan and some of the great claims made on McLuhan's behalf, most notably by his son. And I'm speaking of this book, Laws of Media, co-authored by, the, by Marshall and Eric. This uh, book has an interesting story behind it, um, and I'll tell that in a second. But first I wanted to say that the discovery in this book, called The Tetrad, a fourfold structure that McLuhan's believe applies to all media, Eric McLuhan claims in the preface of this book that it is the greatest intellectual discovery of at least the last couple of centuries, <laughs> which is, uh, that claim has been completely ignored. It's not even been ridiculed. You'd at least expect it to be ridiculed by reviewers. They simply passed it over. And it's not every day. I know we think that arrogant claims are made frequently, but they're actually not uh, people of this level. <laughs> it's very, people are usually hedging their bets and trying to be cautious and not claim too much for their theories. And so I always, my, my eyebrows perk up when I see somebody claiming that they made the most important intellectual discovery of the last three centuries. And even if we exclude the sciences, exclude Einstein and, and Darwin and Maxwell, there's still some pretty stiff competition for that honor in the past few centuries. So this is a huge claim. Um, the background to this book is that Marshall McLuhan was asked to rewrite Understanding Media in a more intelligible way. Understanding Media, which came out of the 1960s, received a number of critical letters from readers, some remarks from the editors, and he was asked to redo the material in a more systematic way. So this started as a rewrite of that first classic book. And while thinking over how to do this, they became a bit influenced by Karl Popper's philosophy of science, that uh, a statement is only scientific if it can be falsified. And so they started trying to come up with things that can be said about media that are falsifiable. That was their road to the Tetrads. And they immediately came up with two. And I should switch to a, a slide here, shouldn't I? Actually, I've, I've missed giving you some atmospheric pictures of the people involved. There's Marshall and Eric at a younger age. Here's the Tetrads. Uh, the first two they came up with are these two, enhancement and obsolescence. Any medium... And they later extended this to any human products, not animal products, and not inanimate things, but anything produced by humans. Enhances some faculty of human beings and obsolesces some other faculty. So you can think of this in terms of extending some capacity that humans have, and this is rendering obsolete some previous capacity that humans had. And after a few hours, they realized that there had always been a third principle at work in, in the McLuhan media theory, and that was reversal. That any medium, if overheated, if filled up with too much content, tends to reverse into the opposites. So a trivial example would be if cars represent speed of motion, too many cars results in traffic jams, and it reverses into a kind of gridlock. And they believe this happens for any medium when pushed far enough. Um, and finally, they realized a few weeks later that retrieval is a fourth principle that had always been at work in their media theory, which is that any medium has, a, an old medium is its contents. So a telephone call has a conversation as its content. Um, I guess originally books had speeches as their content and so forth. Um, I just want to say a little bit about this. One of the ironies here is that you would think that something that's enhanced becomes more visible. It's actually the opposite. When something becomes enhanced for the McLuhans, it retreats into a, a background and it becomes kind of atmospheric. It becomes unnoticed. And so to extend something is to extend a certain faculty of human perception without realizing that that's happening. You don't know until a historical era is over that, it's, that it has happened. Whereas the things that become visible tend to be things that are now obsolete, and those are the things that fill up the content of our lives. It's one of the things that are dead. The things that are really alive right now and really at work in the environment right now are things that we can't quite thematize yet. Uh, he also talks about 
I should say, first of all, this, you could think of this as background and this is figure, figure and grounds. They're very influenced by Gestalt psychology. This is the, the medium in which we're working, uh, the grounds, and these are the figures that we see within that medium. And all of reality for them has to do with our perceiving figures against the ground, and then from time to time these reverse. So somehow by doing something here, things that were hidden now become visible, and now become irrelevant, now become obsolete. And so there's a, a, a fourfold tension in all media, in all, in all human-mated objects, according to McLuhan's. And uh, they also use terms here, cliche and archetype. Things that are obsolete are merely cliches. But cliches can be made into archetypes, and he thinks this is what artists do. Uh, artists find the dead materials of the past and reconvert it into something relevant, you know, kind of art objects. That's one of the two ways that McLuhan talks about things changing. How do things change for the McLuhans? Uh, how, how does one medium evolve into another? One is, is through that artistic process, where dead media are reconverted into something alive. Things that seem to be obsolete can be made alive again. This happens constantly. Um, uh, the other thing that happens to cause change is overheating, as I've mentioned. The, the medium overheats, it fills up with too, too much information, it becomes impossible to process all the information, and we, it turns into a kind of pattern recognition, where we notice only certain shared features of all the things filling up our field of perception, and we oversimplify, and this changes the medium as well. Um, by simply filling up the previous medium with too much information, it collapses, and it reverses into something new. Now, incidentally, I want to say that McLuhan is often called a technological determinist, if you open up an encyclopedia and read about him. And I think the reason that is not true is because both of these things require work. Both of these processes, the uh, transforming cliches into archetypes and also overheating media, do not just happen automatically. They can be done in different ways. We can say that a new medium like uh, MP3 files will at some point overheat, according to McLuhan's theories, and reverse, will collapse into their opposite somehow. But there are many different ways in which this can happen. Once it's happened, you can go back and say, yeah, that was a reversal of, of that medium into something new. But there are many different ways this could happen, and this depends on our activity. It's not something pre-inscribed in the things, necessarily. And, of course, in the case of the arts, it's not pre-inscribed. It's, it's, uh, who can know whether comic books can be made into a serious literary genre or what, whatever? This, this involves personal efforts to see whether somebody can do this. And so you can't just say that McLuhan is a technological determinist that thinks the media do the work for us and just push us along. Humans have to make some decisions here. Now, um, I've, I've already said that this is read as ground and figure for McLuhan. This is the hidden atmosphere in which we always live and work, and these are the things that we see. Uh, he also calls this hidden layer grammar and rhetoric, whereas this is logic. Uh, for him, Western logic focuses only on figures, focuses only on explicit meanings, and ignores the background context of things, uh, which is what ancient grammar and rhetoric did better, according to him. He calls this visual space, he calls this acoustic or tactile space, where, thing, where figures are not necessarily as distinct in, in touch or in sound as they are in, in vision. He even brings out the old uh, right brain, left brain distinction. So here we have the left brain, here the right brain, the intuitive backgrounds uh, that's never completely clear, that never takes on a definite figure. Okay, so that's, that's the basics of the McLuhan Tetrad, and if you ever get this book, they do several hundred of them. Uh, some of them are better than others. They've got all kinds of different examples in here, and they've got commentaries on the side. Um, everything from washing machine to credit card, romanticism, airplane, visual space. Uh, I think they even have one for tetrads in there, tetrads themselves, so it's self-reflexively. 
Well, I want to also say something now about Heidegger. Um, sort of the grim photo of the older Heidegger, who is uh, becoming more and more the consensus great philosopher of the 20th century. There was some resistance for that for a while. For a time, it was Heidegger, Wittgenstein. I think it seems that Heidegger is really rising to the top of this pile in recent years in all traditions of philosophy. And I'll show you his four walls. This is what led me to bring the two of them together. It's, it's both the same and difference. Uh, the basic distinction in Heidegger's philosophy is something like presence and absence. It's similar to McLuhan. You've got a hidden background and you've got a, a foreground of figures resting on top of it. Heidegger is especially famous for this tool analysis in his greatest book, Being in Time. Uh, Heidegger's teacher had been Eben Husserl, who founded the School of Phenomenology in Philosophy. And the point of phenomenology was to try to save philosophy from the steady advance of the natural sciences, which were explaining, turning all of philosophy into experimental psychology, essentially. There seemed to be no place left for philosophy. And the way Husserl tried to save philosophy is by saying, psychology, physics, all of these things are just theories. Right? They talk about atoms and motion smacking into things and reacting on your nervous system and sending chemicals up your spine. But none of us ever see this, of course. Uh, these are theories remote from what we actually experience. And so Husserl tried to take a step backwards and merely describe what we experience. So if you hear a door slam and it's a loud sound, instead of trying to ex give an explanatory theory that, that uh, explains how sound comes into the human ear and into the human brain and is registered by us, you simply describe in very minute detail what the different dimensions of that sound are. Um, you can describe it in much more detail than you could possibly imagine. Husserl supposedly spent a whole semester just having his students describe a mailbox uh, from various different angles. Um, and so the goal was to focus largely on human perceptions. Now, Heidegger's reform to this was to point out that at a pretty young age, 29 or 30 years old, he started rebelling against Husserl, his teacher, and said that uh, most of our contact with things is not as images in our consciousness. Most of our contact with things is through taking them for granted as a kind of background. Uh, the floor. You were sitting on the floor and you weren't thinking of it until I mentioned it. You would only think of it if it collapsed suddenly or if it were vibrating. Uh, your bodily organs. You're not usually thinking of until until they fail. I've had a terrible throat infection in the last five days and haven't been able to swallow and it makes me appreciate good health in a way that I hadn't previously uh, in the preceding weeks. And so for Heidegger, there's this constant reversal between hiddenness and presence. You can think of all of Heidegger's philosophy as a criticism of presence. Heidegger is famous for asking the question of the meaning of being, and being for Heidegger is simply whatever withdraws from consciousness or withdraws from any access at all. Um, okay, so that separates Heidegger's philosophy between the hidden realm and the realm of conscious access, the realm of figures that we're seeing and, and hearing. But then you still have to create a second division because there's four, there's not just two. And no attempt was made to do this in the Heidegger literature, surprisingly. I, I, I think I made the first attempt in my 2002 book to do it, and I think it's, I, I feel that it was a, a successful effort. Uh, you get the second division by going back to Husserl, because Husserl is not just saying we can't know what's outside of consciousness. Other philosophers have done that. Kant had done that. Hegel had done that. Um, what Husserl is saying is that Things in our consciousness also have a separation between the thing and the way it manifests itself to us in any given moment. To be more specific, uh, if I have this chair here, or the, let's just say the building, this building, I can circle the building 
from different angles, different distances, in different moods, with different amounts of light at different times of day. And even though what I'm literally seeing at any moment of the building changes constantly, I'm never seeing the same image at any time of the building. It's, it's always in flux. I'm always still sure that I'm seeing the same building. I see it as a unit. And I'm, I may be wrong about that, but in most cases we're right, unless we're actually hallucinating. I see that as one building, and yet the building is manifesting itself differently at different times. And you can never get all manifestations of the building simultaneously. Even a perfect cubist illustration could not do this, because there would be an infinite possible number of angles to see the building from. And so you've got the second difference between the thing as a unified thing and then the way it manifests itself at any given time, the qualities by which it announces itself. This is, in my reading, Heidegger's forefort. So we've got Heidegger's and we've got McLuhan's. And I just want us to uh, say, first of all, that this is a very strong link between the two of them. Fourfold structures appear very often in the history of thought, and especially in philosophy. This goes all the way back to Plato, uh, Aristotle, Scotus Semiugna, Francis Bacon, and Vico, who are the McLuhan's two heroes, Kant, um, and finally Heidegger. And what characterizes all of these fourfold philosophies is that they are based on the intersection of two dualisms. You have uh, one principle and you have another, and you, you cross them and you've got four quadrants, you've got four possible kinds of things. And obviously the key to making this work is to be sure that you choose two especially fundamental dualisms. You, you, know, you could say something silly like uh, all humans are left-handed and right, or right-handed, all humans are Egyptians or non-Egyptians, and then you could split humans into left-handed Egyptians, left-handed non-Egyptians, right-handed Egyptians, right-handed non-Egyptians. Obviously that's not a very convincing fourfold. So question boils down to how important are the two distinctions that are chosen. Well, um, let me just close by going back to that tetrad slide one time and asking about some of the ways in which they are similar and different, but I feel like I lost the card somewhere. There it is. Well, one obvious similarity between Heidegger and McLuhan is that both of them are very attentive to the background behind any perception. Uh, this is really the signature insight of both. Uh, McLuhan feels that people pay too much attention to the content of media, you know, such as stupid television shows, and not enough attention to the medium itself, and how the medium itself affects people, regardless of the quality of the content of it. In fact, he could even be criticized pretty severely for ignoring content by some observers. Heidegger, the same thing. For Heidegger, anything that's visible, he calls it present at hand. That's always a bad term for Heidegger. Um, What's really important for Heidegger is what hides, what, what is veiled, what is concealed from us. This is where all, everything's really happening. That's where being is. Now, one major difference is that for Heidegger, technology is always a bad thing. I mean, there's a, there are attempts to say that Heidegger isn't that simplistic. I think he really is. Uh, technology at least will reduce things to present-at-hand visible figures. It reduces the forest to lumber. It reduces mountains to a stockpile of coal. Uh, it reduces the Rhine River to a site for tourist inspection, he says. Uh, always very grim uh, formulations of what technology does for us. And uh, whereas for McLuhan, uh, technological media have this wonderful power to create this magical background world that hides some new possibility for human existence in it. So he, he and Heidegger differ in that way. But they are both fourfold structures where each of the terms mirror the other and where any given thing is not simple but has a, has a depth to it and also has a foreground to it. Uh, another big difference is that Heidegger has very little interest in individual objects or in analyzing the differences between individual objects. For, for Heidegger, Heidegger is infamous for saying that the uh, manufacture of corpses in the gas chambers in World War II is fundamentally no different from the mechanized food production. 
Because both are taking something that has depth and reducing it to a surface that can be manipulated and used. Um, so Heidegger can't even draw that distinction between a death camp and a, a mechanized farm. Whereas for McLuhan, you can see there, there are hundreds of pages of specific analyses of specific technologies here. Uh, one other interesting similarity between them is that the role they both give to artists. Uh, for, for McLuhan, the artist is someone who takes an obsolete, dead, old thing and brings it back to life by putting it in some special context that gives it a new potential. Uh, whereas for Heidegger, the artist is someone who creates a tension between depth and the foreground. It, uh, I just gave a talk on Friday at the Arts Institute here, and Heidegger has a famous essay, The Origin of the Work of Arts, where he talks about the Van Gogh painting of the peasant shoes, which actually turned out to be Van Gogh's own shoes. Heidegger was wrong about what they were. Um, and somehow, when we see normal shoes in everyday life, according to Heidegger, we're just seeing a visible present at hand figure that has no clue that there's some background depth to it. Whereas the artist is somehow hinting at that, brings the, the depth of the shoes to light, brings the world of the peasant woman to life by painting the shoes. Um, for Heidegger, one other way that this changes is that the background fails. I've mentioned broken tools for Heidegger. Things, things fail. And when things fail, they become visible to us. Uh, so again, Heidegger's principle of motion here is always that this kind of thrusts up into the foreground, whereas for McLuhan, most of the work happens here. Um, either the artist is transforming a cliché into an archetype, or else the artist, or else the, a medium is overheating and reversing into its opposites. So those are some of the, the similarities I've seen between uh, Heidegger and McLuhan, and I think this opens up an interesting new way of looking at objects. I also am talking about Bruno Latour tomorrow, but it's interesting. Um, this is one thing Latour does not do. He, he has a few minimal four-point structures in some of his books, but for Latour, a thing is never really split from itself. A thing is its qualities for Latour, and a thing is its relations to other things. Uh, and so there isn't really this tension within an object for Latour, the way there is for my other two favorite authors these days, Heidegger and McLuhan, where the object itself is split apart into four parts, and is a kind of mirror reflecting the other four parts, the other three of the four parts. Uh, whereas for Latour, the action happens in the relations between different things. So uh, I would say that the greatness of Heidegger's philosophy really boils down to this fourfold structure. And given the closeness of McLuhan's tetrad, which also gives us perhaps more specific hints as to how to explain the relation between these four things and specific objects, which Heidegger never does, uh, I think McLuhan has a pretty bright future if Heidegger's future continues to stay bright. And I'll leave it there and take your questions. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll just um, um, I'll, I'll ask uh, the first one since you brought up the, um, the issue of Latour and. Uh, I mean, the first time you were, you were explaining that tetrad, you, you suggested that the McLuhan's reserve is only for man-made objects, they do. They do. and um, Heidegger is also criticised that he's never really <coughs> detached from self from, uh, um, from the human being's perspective or Dasein. Uh, he's kind of trapped in that uh, world, and of course Latour is famous for dissolving that distinction between human and non-human. Um, um, things, objects. Um, so to, um, to what extent is the tetrad applicable to you know, non-man-made um, objects, for, for instance? 
I think extremely well. They don't. They, they want to deal completely semiotically. It's just their language. And you're right, this is one of the sort of strengths compared to the Quillens, or especially to Heidegger. Heidegger says that um, Newton's, Newton's laws were neither true nor not true before humans discovered them. Um, because someone has to actually discover it. To, of course, Latour says things like this, too, despite his dissolution of the, the human-non-human distinction. Um, as you know, I'm always inclined to try to, to do that even more. One of, one of the things I didn't mention today is that I personally think Heidegger didn't go far enough with his own philosophy. That Heidegger thinks tools hide from us. Right? Tools we, we think we're seeing the... We, I'm conscious of a certain number of things, but there's actually this vast number of background implements that I'm using without realizing it while I'm looking at a few things. Okay, so it's... The world is deeper than any theory, any theory about it or any looking. That's true. I... I think that Heidegger already has to push that a step further and say that the world is deeper than any praxis because some people want to say that's the theory-practice distinction, right? That we're doing, we're, we're doing practical things unconsciously and then you, every now and then you theoretically become aware of it. The problem with that is that human praxis also does not exhaust the things. By sitting on the floor, you're not using it up any more than by looking at it. Right? The, the floor is going to have many properties that you don't need in order to sit on it. It's going to have certain electromagnetic vibrations that only insects can pick up from it and things like that. So there are going to be infinite, let's say infinitely many qualities of the, of the floor and the carpets that are going to be completely irrelevant to us as people who look at it and, and completely irrelevant to us as people who sit, sit on it securely. And so even our practice can't exhaust the things. And then I think it has to go even one step further and say that the things do not exhaust each other either. That if you have uh, fire-burning cotton, which is the old famous example from Islamic philosophy, the fire is also not coming into contact with all the properties of the cotton. The cotton has color, which the fire is irrelevant to the fire. It has smell, which is irrelevant to the fire. It has you know, maybe a few insects trapped in it, which is irrelevant to the fire. It's just going to burn the cotton. It's going to t- deal with the flammable nature of the cotton. And so I think the hiddenness is not just something hidden from human consciousness, the way that McLuhan's and Heidegger want to set it up. The hiddenness is, is really by the fact of existing. A thing has an interiority that cannot be touched, and that any relation is going to be a caricature of things that you relate to. Um, and so I think that um, when they talk about media, they're thinking of human media in the narrow sense, right? And I think you have to think of it more broadly than that. That media, medium, is a place where, any, where something happens, and this could be a mere causal interaction between two things that aren't humans at all. So I think there's a deeper philosophical importance to this. I'm having a bit of trouble in um, probably understanding the tetrad. Uh-huh. I had the same problem with, with the kind of hot, the, one of the famous things about McClure, um, you know, the hot, uh, the hot and cool media distinction. I can't, I never, can't get a hold of that. Which distinction? The hot and cool media oh, oh, yes. distinction. Yeah. You know, there are three yeah. things that people know about McClure. Right? Verbal village, um, uh, which, okay, we understand that. Medium is the massage, we understand that, which is the figure ground thing, really, because the massage right. is, the, is the ground. Right. <coughs> and then I think about hot and cool media, and I must say I could never quite. Um, understand the principles, um, so I could never actually apply that thing to myself because although I could sort of understand what he said when he gave examples, I couldn't quite get to the underlying principle. Mm-hmm. And I have the same problem here, I think. Although the, um, yeah, the figure ground thing, okay, that, that makes mm-hmm. sense, and that's one thing that we sort of owe to McClellan, if you like, and I think is now, you know, part of the background common sense of media studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't give me an understanding of where each of the four quadrants comes from and what, you know, fundamentally is a characteristic of each in such a way that I could then think, oh, well, actually, that is... Which is often the case with these matrices. I tend to like them because they can sometimes 
give you nice ways of thinking about mm -hmm. something, you know, dividing it this way and dividing it that way, and seeing how things... But I can't quite get the underlying principles here. Okay. Um, Maybe I should say something first about the hot and cold media. That, of course, happens at the level of figure because it's a question of how much information there is in the medium. And it, it's... Um, the less information there is, the colder the medium is, the more information there is, the hotter it is. One of his famous examples is radio is a hot medium because words are just being fired at you and you can't really not any way to process them or make any contribution to the information. Whereas television he considers a cold medium. And he even goes so far as to think that certain personalities flourish better in a cold medium or hot medium and that Nixon failed because he was a hot medium personality who failed in television debates, which is a cold medium. Um, and by heating up a medium, that's when it's going to reverse. If you heat it up enough, it has no choice but to reverse because it overloads the senses, as in the example of the cars. Um, but to, I mean, yeah, to sort of pick up on that, since it relates to reversal, I haven't quite seen the connection between the hot and cool thing and the, uh, and the reversal. But, I mean, in any common sense definition, television is more information intensive than radio. So, yeah, again, what's the principle? You know, mm -hmm. If the principle is information, then then why doesn't it sort of classify television for the media as well? Yeah, I've that kind of thing I could never quite sort of uh, you know, get the feel for in, the, uh, in that distinction. I used to sometimes wonder if that was an overreaction to the state of television at the time. It had a flickering images, just the technological limitations of it. Um, yeah, we wouldn't really think the contemporary television was not, certainly not her, given the amount of text on the screen it is heated up. It is heated up, and so it has to reverse. What does it reverse into? Internet. It, it also reverses into the TiVo somehow. A medium can reverse into many different kinds of things. He gives many alternate tetrads for each one because there are many different ways it can go. Um, I, I've already seen email reverse from speed into a lack of speed. I can no longer reach my youngest brother by email because he's a sort of internet professional, and he gets 3,000 emails a day, of which nine, you know, 1,900 are junk, and he can never find my messages when he's searching through them. Um, as, for, as for why television was always considered a cold medium, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I find that compelling either. Yeah, at the time it wasn't very dense, whereas, you know, MTV generation and things like that made it much more, much popular. Yeah. It used to be in the 60s. Yeah. Whereas well, radio was already in its, um, yeah. you know, in its maturity, thirty yeah. or forty years on. And you could take a sort of elitist time view and say, well, you know, television is just full of junk. It's, um, yeah. Even though, in a technical sense, there's lots, you know, lots of information there because it's visual and dynamic and so on. It's actually full of junk, so it doesn't sort of have the same uh, um, rational information value as does uh, speech-based media. But I'm not sure that's what it meant. You know, so again, the underlying principle beneath that distinction is. It could be the visual thing, because really you have to be, you have to actively have your attention there to be able to, to take in what's, what's there, whereas television, you yeah. may be completely absent-minded yeah. and still yeah. taking the images. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's probably a good way of looking at it. I, I, if, if you, staring at a fire would be the ultimate cold medium, I guess, even though a fire is hot, because you're just watching the flickering and you can kind of doze off and be half-conscious of it, and there's very limited information when you're watching a fireplace. Radio, radio, yeah, you do have to listen very carefully. Yeah. You miss the message. But that's making a distinction on basis of effects rather than some inherent properties of the medium. Right, and I guess you could heat up almost any medium. I mean, I guess you could heat up a fireplace. I don't know how you would do that. By throwing um, um, <laughs> <laughs> So that 
I don't know, make it a bit more effective. <coughs> yeah. Or by burning stuff, and then you have to watch stuff burn and you think about it because they've got sentimental value to you. Okay. So it's not just watching. <coughs> Well, another, another kind of example occurs to me, which is the difference between spoken and written language, which he considers another example of called and hot medium distinction. Because uh, obviously written language is very formalized. There are spelling rules. There are stricter grammar rules. And so that's another way in which it can be heated. If it's formalized and very rule-based, whereas spoken language obviously allows a, bit, a lot of informality and slang. You don't have to do everything perfectly accurately. You can improvise. Um, okay, but you were wondering how that applies to the tetrads. Uh Well, these have to be read, I think, as cliches and archetypes, because this has to, both of these are things that are visible to us in our everyday life. These, <laughs> Invisible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, I see Daniel on the slideshow. These are the things that have just recently been <laughs> demolished by whatever advances happened in media. But these are the things that are the, the visible content of the new medium. And so these two have different status. These have been put, brushed away. They're junk. They're obstacles in our path. Whereas these are the things that seem to be the content of the medium, although what's actually happening in the medium is the deeper thing that we're not aware of. As long as the, as long as the medium is still active with McLuhan's, we're not aware of its effects. Its effects are purely subliminal in background. Um, and so even though we think we are all aware of what the effects of the Internet are, those would simply be here. And I guess over here would be things like postal mail and all of all the things that have been shuttered aside for the moment until they come back in some new form, in some later reversal. Can you say that, I mean, in one sense, if this were true, you know, if this is universally applicable, then obviously it's really, really important because it's a law. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it could be because it is really, really generic. And you could say that they're really good historians, but maybe bad cultural theorists in the sense that they don't care about the particularities of cultural message you said before. Uh, the one thing is about the internet. It's something you said before which is really interesting. Uh, the more information we get, the more choice we get through the internet, mm -hmm. then people tend to fall back in between our rituals and trusting very, very, and doing very, very few things because we can't take choice. So maybe reversal is merely the, the, the circular way that history moves. Retrieval is that we need to keep something from, that nothing disappears, nothing comes from nothing. Mm -hmm. Obsolescence is that evolution and enhancement is evolution again. So maybe it's just like a way to apply history to the media, maybe or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's bad cultural theory, you think? Probably because it doesn't. It is a bit deterministic. From I mean, I'm not, I don't disagree with it. I'm just saying that I can imagine why cultural theorists would disagree with this. Hmm. Uh, because it may. I mean, it, it tries to give a law, and cultural theorists, cultural theorists. Laws and universal, you know, truths mm -hmm. because they don't like that. Um, but even if it were a law, there would be many possible ways it could play out. That's what would keep it from being deterministic. So you could say that there are many possible ways that cell phones will reverse because they have many different qualities, and we don't know which one of those is going to overheat. Um, we don't know what's going to come back, and that might be partly up to our actions, or largely up to our actions. But is there, any, I mean, this sounds really dodgy. Any predictive power in this? I guess there could be. I guess you could uh, uh, try to use this to figure out what's going to happen next. They even do that in a few cases. They have, uh, they don't go into detail, but they have Einstein's theory of relativity, David Tetrad, and it reverses into the next great theory of physics not yet discovered. 
but they don't spell it with what it is. But there's a space there to speculate what that is. Yeah, I, what you can do is look at what's obsolesced and assume that something is going to come from that and be part of what it reverses into. So if Einstein uh, obsolesced Newton, you have to look for something in Newton that might come back and play a role in the new physics. Um, to some extent, I'm not really an expert at all in physics, but I've heard that this kind of has happened a bit with quantum physics and things we don't know, or as Ramsey would say, you know, the things we know that we don't know, basically. Hmm. Well, I, I know for a while um, it was becoming fashionable again to say that maybe you can inherit acquired characteristics from your parents. Yeah, this, this, we thought that Darwin killed this off. And then it became fashionable to say, no, wait, maybe you, if you are learning the piano as a 30-year-old, the way, the way you're doing it is by picking up a virus that assists you in learning the piano, and then you do pass that virus on to your children, so you, your children actually can learn things that you learn. I don't, I don't know how, how widespread that is now, but at least people were toying with that idea. Something that seemed completely dead is suddenly resurging back and towards mainstream science. And so, yeah, every, I do use this as a tool sometimes to try to dig through the past and wonder what seems completely... What, alchemy. You know, could alchemy come back in some way? Well, I guess it probably could, right? With nanotechnology, uh, there could be ways to manipulate certain elements to become certain others. Um, so never say anything is dead. should come back in some form. It should be retrieved eventually. Mm. So, so I, I guess the, the point of exploring this with my students is we're, we're concentrating on interactive media. Mm -hmm. um, and so looking at that whole discourse about how um, it's being, it's all these fears that people express about how it's becoming increasingly difficult to believe what you read. Or, um, you know, you've got to check who's written this thing on the internet. Or, or Wikipedia isn't reliable because all of these kind of discourses. Um, and in a Foucauldian sense, they express you know, a, a, 
competition to become more legitimate. Um, and I suppose Feynman using the clue and maps out how those legitimacies change. Right. And that the legitimacies, legitimacies would be constantly reversing according to this model. Um, we do see a kind of resurgence of gossip now as a, as a major form of news. I also have a hard time. I mean, we probably all had the experience recently in the last few years of falling for something that turned out to be a hoax because of the Internet. That didn't happen as much before, right, because it had to go through a newspaper editorial board and be vetted, and it might happen from time to time, and there might be outright conspiracies to falsify the news. But it's a more regular experience now, isn't it, that we, we fall for stories that are simply utterly false. Uh, in the American election campaign now, uh, deliberate, apparently deliberately placed rumors are playing a major role. You know, these emails that Obama's a secret Muslim it did influence many voters against it early on. Um, there appears to be no grounds for it whatsoever, and no one is ever going to know who did it. Um, of course, I live in Egypt where that happens all the time anyway. Uh, they don't trust any of the government media, and so rumors are a major source of information. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I wonder, I've never thought of applying reversals to Foucault. Um, could some of the things that Foucault talked about having been taken away come back? For example, these horrible punishments pre-prison. Uh, pre um, I don't think we're going to be ripping people's flesh off of pliers anymore in public squares. I hope not. But some form of that. In the United States, I don't know about in the UK, but in the United States, because of the uh, excess prison population, they've tried to go back to public humiliation punishments in some cases. So, you know, a woman steals petrol from a station. They make her stand there with a sign all day that says, I stole petrol from the station, and cars go by and honk and make fun of her. Um, it's actually a much more financially feasible way to handle it. Um, have suicide rates gone up? Uh, I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> but it, there's some evidence that it's more effective, and so maybe prison is going to reverse back into, I don't know if they're going to put people in stocks, but uh, some of these old punishments might come back in some form. Forced community service has been a big thing in the States for about 20 years as a punishment. It just doesn't make any sense to throw everybody in jail. You can't afford it. So, yeah, what else does Foucault talk about having disappeared? Does it all Could it all come back in a reversal? Maybe. Um. I'm, I'm particularly like um, Foucault's um, sort of photo text manifestos of the 60s. Mm -hmm. In some ways, they're as exciting as experimental photo books of the 1920s, say. Mm. Do you have any thoughts about his use of photographs and image text? I, I, I think yeah. they're... Oh, did I? I meant I McLuhan. It's funny, I heard McLuhan. Oh. <laughs> my mind... Uh, no, you're probably right. <laughs> you heard Foucault. Okay, um, I agree with you. Um, my first reaction to it is that it certainly harmed his career with academics. I mean, they... they there was a lot of resentment against Marshall McLuhan at the University of Toronto. They didn't see him as a serious academic. They thought he was getting too much attention. And it was largely because of these photo books and his appearance in the Woody Allen film and these sorts of things, his appearance as a pop culture figure. Um, I think they're wonderful. Um, is that the way that we should start all writing our books? Well, in a way, we could with, with Internet technologies, couldn't we? we I mean, we're using PowerPoint now. And now that Peter's gotten me addicted to PowerPoint, which I used to never use, so it would be hard to imagine giving a talk with that one again. I think I'll take some lessons. Um, but they, those are wonderful books. 
They're compulsively readable. Uh, the medium is the massage, the global village. Is there a third one? Those are the two that I remember. It's been a while since I read any of these. War and Peace in the Global Village is the full title here. Yeah. Where the uh, photography is doing a lot of the work of the argument. Yeah. I think... Uh, I often wonder about this in my own view of philosophy. Are we, in, are we working with the wrong genres when we simply write treatises with nothing but words? There haven't really been experimental major experimental philosophy books, let's say. That's a slight oversimplification. There have been some minor experiments in form. Wittgenstein with his little aphorisms. But there hasn't been anything as quite as experimental as, as what McLuhan does with those books. Yes, because the beginner's book series would just have a drawing of Marx and then a speech. That's right. And um, in a way it's easier to read the original than to have to work through all that. Whereas the um, Fury-McLuhan books are really, as I say, as exciting as some of the um, best books of the 1920s. Yeah. John Bergevitz and the other ways of saying That's right. Well, I, I, think, we'll I, think, that. That, I think that that would be a parallel case. Yeah. I think that he would definitely be engaging with the sorts of things that somebody like Maholi Narge would have been doing in the 1920s. I don't even know that stuff. Possibly take that point in a different direction. How would you, um, within the Tetra, um, understand convergence, media convergence? Because um, the, uh, the um, I, th I think a lot of the kind of language that you've been using to just, you know, to explain the Tetra to seems to um, <coughs> be designed for kind of discrete objects. Right? As you say, it's, it's it turned into a, a scheme for understanding any kind of object. Mm -hmm. um, but if you take a notion that is, in a way, very material, like media convergence, it's not actually about an object per se. So I, I, I was just wondering, I suppose behind that is a question about the possible kind of policy uh, implications or the uh, kind of handles on different contemporary social and technological trends that we might get from this. Um, how would you understand media convergence in the terms of tech trade? Or is that not the right sort of question to what, what, uh, Give me an example of media convergence. Um, well, the use of the same content across uh, all kinds of different media. Uh, they, you know, the idea is of three or four media being fused into some new kind of piece of hardware that, we, that sits in the home and kind of thing. You know, content or, or delivery platform. Uh, you know, things are getting all mixed up. And like a Blackberry with telephone calls, email, web, yeah. Well, it would still work, wouldn't it? Um, it would just become a very complicated analysis with this, because it would be reversing freedom and things, or obsolescing freedom and things at the same time. Um, it's a pity he's not around to look at some of this new stuff. Well, I mean, he probably could see it coming. He, he was really into cable television at the end of his life. That's about as far as he saw, I think. Yeah, I don't think he really saw the Internet coming. Convergence plus the last two squares as a concept because it's about enhancement and about retrieving elements of previous media. Mm -hmm. But to what extent does it reverse to anything? Well, it certainly can reverse into a major headache, it can reverse into a kind of ball and chain. And my Blackberry gives me mobility, but then you're always tied to it because yeah. people know you're always reachable and they expect quick responses. Kind of, kind of sedentary nomads wandering around your neighborhood but always tied to a response. 
Um, you know, how, how would you explain bringing the several different media together into one? I guess <coughs> maybe obsolescing the separateness of the different media and enhancing their applicability. Yeah, so maybe the, the convergence of, um, I suppose, television and, and, and the internet. So the increasing um, practice of watching television on your computer. Maybe the obsolescence there is it's the, the traditional mode of reception yeah. of watching television. So you just have in front of the television set, perhaps, and incorporate the, the hardware and those kinds of conditions. So perhaps taking each medium and looking at convergence as part of the overheating, maybe. Yeah. And it's true, isn't it? You would know this better than I do, uh, that the television stations sued Sony over the VCR because they wanted to control when people saw the shows and not just the content of the shows. Is this true? People know about this? I'd heard that somewhere. There was a lawsuit against the first VCR because they say not only do we own the program, we own the right to show it to you at exactly 5 o'clock on Thursday, and if you're not there, too bad. And they lost, of course. Sony won the lawsuit. I wonder if there are any, uh, or, or you could draw any parallels with uh, sort of Latour's idea of black boxing, where, yeah. um, you know, uh, Latour seems to say that something is, so in, I guess building on this hot and cold um, I, I, uh, medium uh, distinction, that if something, uh, the more connection something has, the more alive it is, or the more real it is, mm -hmm. or, or the more significant it is. Um, um, so that would mean, I guess, hotting up to, in, in, in some sense. Um, on the other hand, once um, a controversy has been settled mm -hmm. or something that has been constructed, it turns into a black box and, uh, in a way, um, withdraws or at least um, is taken for granted. Um, you know, is, are, are there any sort of parallels that could be drawn between that? those processes perhaps? Yeah, the black box would obviously be the background because it's something we rely on. We don't open up the black box for the tour. We don't, when we fly an airplane, we don't ask how the airplane works. This starts making strange sounds. I would say that, that by relating, you're actually cooling it down. You're putting it more into the background. Because remember from the tour, for something to have more alliances makes it more real. You become more real if you have more allies acknowledging your existence, acknowledging your power. Uh, and that in a way almost seems to make you less questionable less controversial and more into the backgrounds. Um, it's when you start to run into problems and failures that you become a, a figure, I think, uh, whose, whose claims are in dispute. Um, I think it's very hard, though, to map a tour directly into McLuhan. And he, has, he has no interest in McLuhan, just as he has no interest in Heidegger. So I'm not the pest who keeps forcing him to try to converge with these two figures. We'll see what he says tomorrow. So that both Heidegger and McLuhan pay regular attention to artists and I'm thinking obviously their conceptualization or perception of artists was very time specific and today you could say that everybody's an artist or with the internet, with peer-to-peer, -peer, with everything, everybody could be an artist. I mean, would that conceptualization have changed if they were, you know, if they were writing today? I'm not sure everyone can be a good artist now. I mean, maybe certain barriers to being an artist have been removed by these technologies. But you know, just, I, I still can't go on a computer and draw anything, no matter how many tools I have at my disposal. Um, 
do you really think their theories of art are time specific more so than any other theory of art? I mean, maybe what we consider to be an artist, I think that has changed a bit, doesn't it? I mean, how do you define an artist? Is it commercial success? Is it critical acclaim? Is it how the artist defines themselves? Is it how the peers define them? They give fairly specific definitions. For Heidegger, it's anyone who creates a tension between the hidden earth and the visible world. And for McLuhan, it's anybody who can take these dead old forms and reconvert them into living images of what they used to be. And however you do that, however you manage to do that, you will have satisfied the definition of the artist if you do that. Um, I'm not sure that either of them would think, definitely not Heidegger, a technophobe of sorts, I'm not even sure McLuhan would say that everyone's necessarily becoming an artist now. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what to say besides that. It's difficult. I mean, it's difficult anyway to define it. I guess it's, it's a very, very difficult question. Nobody can answer that because all the answers are different, isn't it? When, how do you define an artist? I think that's a very open question. So, uh, they've got their criteria, which I guess, how do you answer, how do you meet these criteria, how do you know that they've been fulfilled. So I guess you could say that their definition of an artist is trying to make, to help define what it is, I guess. But I don't see how it links to the media, to be honest. What if you're just working with just really, really simple stuff like speech? Is an art form? Yeah. I think McLuhan would certainly be open to alternative media. I mean, look at his own his own books. Prove this. I think he was really an experimenter in a way that Heidegger was not. But isn't that partly an answer to what one of the things that he was very very excited about was um, early twentieth century modernism? Mm -hmm. And usually, one goes on about the literature that. He likes, but it seems to me too he was very interested in the new media of the early 20th century. You're talking about McLuhan? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, in many ways he did fit the profile of an old literature scholar, but you're right, he was, he was very attuned to these new media, but it was a fairly late interest for him. His early stuff was all about the trivium and the quadrivium and grammar and rhetoric and logic and Thomas Nash and uh, very much a, it looked like he could have been a, a standard literary historian, and then he went off in this other direction that people weren't expecting. And it was in some ways harmful for his career, even though it helped him with the public. Um, yeah, he shows a lot of he shows a lot of sensitivity to what the Cubists were accomplishing, and certainly to television. That speaks for itself. In technological media, um, whereas Heidegger saw in, in these developments nothing but woe and superficiality. Several steps back, back to Barry's question, really, about back to the tetrad, because I'm I'm still having trouble understanding oh. the, the dynamics of the tetrad mm -hmm. and the relationship between the parts. I mean, is it as simple as you know, the top layer represents the grounds and the, the bottom layer represents the figures, or are there are there diagonal interrelationships? There also, is yeah. there a, is there a, a necessarily a linear progression around or between the elements? He says that all the patterns have uh, ratios to each other, so. 
yes, this is to this, this is to this, and this is to this, this is to this, this is to this, and this. Every possible thing holds as a ratio. Okay. Um, these two are automatically attached, because as soon as you enhance something, you're obsolescing something else. He says there's a certain equilibrium of the senses, and we, we can only take so much information, and so increase one thing is to decrease another. We can only pay attention to so many things at once. Um, so to enhance, I should just pull out an example here. Some of them are too complicated to speak out about, however. Well, okay, the written word. It enhances private authorship in the ego and simultaneously obsolesces vulgar slang dialects. Um, what it retrieves is elitism. That's a good one. It retrieves some older form of elitism because there's only certain literary elites that can write with the proper grammar and style. It reverses that. This doesn't make any sense to me. Some of these seem like half-baked notes. Um, it's with the corporate reading public and historical sense. I don't know what that means. Well, we can imagine it. We can imagine for ourselves what it might reverse into. Um, it's got to reverse into something that seemed to be obsolescent. Maybe deliberately mannered styles try to artificially recreate dead vulgar slang and dialects. Um, and as far as this diagonal, this is a little harder to see, isn't it? The, 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 even though reversal is something that happens at the level of figure, it's triggered at the level of figure because it's this when the information heats up too much here, it will flip over and reverse. The reason it's here, I think, on the level of the ground is that there must be something hidden in the ground that implicitly waits to be reversed into. That's the only sense I can make of it. And so that even though the internet might seem to obsolesce something or other, it contains that germ of that thing coming back already, and that, that germ is contained in the ground somehow too. Whereas the, so this is something that will come back later but is now hidden, whereas this is something that was hidden and is now visible. I guess that's the relationship. Something that has been retrieved. Has, has already been retrieved. This is something that will be retrieved. Yeah, that's right. And again, I don't think it's quite deterministic because there are many different ways something can be retrieved. Um, you know, the, it's, the Roman Empire could be retrieved in some way, but there are different there are different possible ways this could happen. This could happen in the form of, you know, Mediterranean military empire, quite literally, or it could it could be in other ways. It could be through the European Union, or it could be through Latin coming back. I've, I've heard there's a mild groundswell to make Latin the European language because people don't like English being it or something. It's not making much headway yet, is it? Gladiators in reality TV, that's very Roman. Which is? Gladiators in reality TV shows. In a way it is. Yeah, yeah the vulgar, uh, decadent public entertainment. In a way we are retrieving the Roman Empire that way. Yeah. Presidential yeah. debates. Yeah, okay. Right. Um, I'm looking at my watch and realizing, unfortunately, we've run a bit over time, so I'm going to go on thinking of early examples of retrieval, which will be the the afternoon. Uh, but thanks very much, Graham. I think um, next time that we're standing in the foyer downstairs, I'm sort of absentmindedly looking at that McLuhan quote on the wall. Um, uh, or next time coming across a reference to McLuhan, and instead of just tweeting, it's kind of a ritual nod to a one of the founding fathers, we might sort of uh, be able to draw a bit more kind of substance of what he was actually saying. So thanks very much for um, sure. retrieving the clue for us. So. Sure, and if you ever want to find a copy of this book, you can look at many examples and get more practice with the method that way. This book has a lot of them. Right. Thanks very much.